Inspired by the brains behind the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Built by the brawn of Daryl Morey and yours truly, Jessica Gelman. And generously brought to you by our partners at Oracle. Live from our work from home studios to yours, we proudly bring you Trash Talking, a podcast designed to debunk and demystify the use of analytics in sports. We'll point out the dangers of using trash data in decision making. And in true baller style, We'll serve it up with good old fashioned trash talking and invite some of our best and brightest friends in sports, business, media, and tech to join the conversation. And now at five foot eight from Kager, also known as Kraft Analytics Group and MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference co-founder, Jessica Gelman. Also weighing in at just over 200 pounds with a full beard from the Philadelphia 76ers and the other MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference co-founder, Daryl Morey. In our fifth episode, we are thrilled to welcome Shane Battier, two-time NBA champion with the Heat, an NCAA champion at Duke, college player of the year, and one of my all-time favorite players. He was profiled by Michael Lewis uh, in the No Stats All-Star in the New York Times Magazine. He currently serves as the Vice President of Basketball Development and Analytics for the Miami Heat. He's always voted best dressed at Sloan each year. And today, (laughs) we'll cover the role of analytics in Shane's playing career, his current front office position, how COVID has affected player evaluation, the upcoming season, and of course, Badioki. Can't wait to cover Badioki. Did did Badioki get killed by... Get killed by COVID too. You know, luckily we uh, we were able to have we pivoted this year. Uh, we had an event called Cabernet with Battier, and so we 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 incorporated two of my favorite loves, you know, red wine and karaoke. And so uh, Cabernet with Battier was a big success. Uh, you know, Daryl, you need to come and defend your title one of these years. There's a, there's apparently no limit to the number of puns you can make with the Battier name. Uh, we're learning. And then also, I'm currently searching my spam folder for my invite. That must be where it went for your Cabernet with Battier. I think the competitors were afraid. They were they were afraid of me joining and winning. Is my, uh, my well, sense. you know, Andy Ellisberg is also a champion at Battioki. You know, the last time we had Battioki, Andy Ellisberg uh, did uh, Soul Man. And brought the house down. So you're not the Ooh. only executive, Daryl, with some chops <laughs> on the mic. You know, big big Andy did, came came strong. So he's he's not afraid of you. He's not afraid of you. Did he wear a, a very large, uncomfortable pink dress? Did he really sell it, or what? what happened? He didn't. He did not. He did not go as far as you went, Daryl. You know, that's an all time all time photo. If anyone can find it, I don't. I think that uh, those got banished from the internet. It was it was amazing for people who didn't. You know, just imagine Daryl in a, in, a, in a in a Glinda pink dress, uh, singing his his little heart out uh, to show tunes, wicked. And uh, it was all for great all for great cause. The Batty Take Charge Foundation. So Daryl's um, lack of uh, I guess uh, uh, of tact and his ability to be uh, self. Uh, immolating, uh, raise a lot of money for kids to go to college uh, around this country. So thank you, Daryl. Your your heart is as big as your your voice. Shane, our our detectives, the Sloan student detectives, they found the video. So I saw it. You weren't so bad yourself. I think you also had a dress on. 
I, I did, but you know, I got, I have nice legs, so I can, you know, I can she, pull it off. She, he, Shane had the LBD on though, the, the little black dress. So he, he looked more fashionable than, than me and my bad prom dress. Basically. So yeah, it was good. I will, I will say though, I really enjoy Shane. I get the updates on the kids that you and Heidi help with the, uh, the foundation and, uh, I don't know if you're too familiar, Jessica, but they sponsor what it's uh, several kids from Miami, Houston, and Detroit, and the Michigan area, right? Each year yeah. to for college, and they track them through their lives, and it's it's awesome because you can see the impact Shane and Heidi have made over multiple years. Well, we have, we have our first uh, our first PhD uh, candidate this year, which is a pretty big milestone. We have a our, our first. Uh, our first student going to Stanford for Miami. Um, and so it's, it's really fun to watch kids who have amazing potential uh, just get their shot. And uh, so that's, that's, that's our life's mission. We're going we're gonna to keep rocking it. I will say, Elton Brand, I did mention to him that I believe you have the most wins in college basketball history. And Elton quickly said that if he had stayed in school, he would have broke your record. Um, so I don't know if, how you respond that's, to Elton Brand. To- that's a big if. I think I think Elton should have <laughs> should have concentrated more on keeping his room clean. You know, Elton and I were, were college <laughs> college freshman roommates, and I love Elton. He is he is a slob, and so like you know, God bless Shahara. Um, I hope that he's come a long way. I mean, look at him; he's, he's he's the GM now. You know, he's all grown up. You know, I know. I'm so proud of him. He's, he's a brilliant guy, a brilliant mind, great. I mean, just a great guy. But he was a slob. Uh, but I, I, lo- I love EB, and uh, we had a lot of fun. I, you know, I was very serious my, my freshman year, very serious. And actually, I walked into Coach K's office about two weeks in, and I said, I, I can't live with Elton. I can't live with Will Avery. I, I need my sleep. I need to go to bed at 11 o'clock. These guys are playing their music. I need a single. Get me out of here. And Coach K and his infinite wisdom said, just give it time. Give it time. And uh, sure enough, those guys allowed me to, you know, enjoy my freshman year and, and – uh, relax a little bit. So I, I don't know if I'd be here without uh, Elton and Will Avery. So even though they were messy, I appreciate them a little. <laughs> Elton takes credit for all your success. <laughs> I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does. Just to get us going on your basketball career, given what you've learned about NBA analytics, both when you were a player and then today in your role, how would you change your game if you could go back in time? If I could go back and change uh, my career, I don't think I would have stepped foot inside the three-point line um, at all. Zero. I think I would have tried to shoot 23s a game. <laughs> and ironically, ironically, Jeff Van Gundy, who I, who I love, I love as, I loved as a coach and as, as, as a person, you know, he brought me into his office and said, look, I need you to shoot about 12 to 13 threes a game. And he, he was way ahead of his time. He, this is true because I was reluctant to shoot. We had Yao, we had Tracy. You know, I just wanted to be a guy and make the red pass and keep spacing. And that wasn't in my nature at that point to be a, be a gunner. And, uh, you know, now knowing what I know now, uh, I would have scored a lot more points. Uh, I probably would have played a lot more. I would have made a lot more money if I just said, you know what, I'm, a, I'm just only going to shoot threes and do nothing else, and uh, because 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 of the value. And so I wouldn't recommend that. I wouldn't recommend that to everybody. But for me, that would have been uh, it would have been a game changer. And so I wasted too much of my life working on step back jumpers and splitting the pick and rolls when I should just have been working on, you know, the Steph Curry 
you know, half court shot. You had the you had the lefty hook. You had the the I shimmy did. in the corner. I you did. Know, you had, I did. You had all that, and I would say that if you had done that at Duke and only shot threes, you could have been the pioneer, Shane. Well, it's funny. Like you know, it, it would have been tough to get drafted that way. But like once you establish yourself, like a, a natural metamorphosis would have been to just be the true ultimate three and D guy. And uh, that's something I'm, I'm proud of that I was able to, to become. And it was out of necessity. You know, everyone thinks like, oh, Shane, like great 3 and D guy. You know, that wasn't a conscious thought by me that I need to become a, a just a just a great defender and a three point shooter. Like that was out of necessity. When I got when I played for the Memphis Grizzlies, uh, you know, my, my rookie year, I averaged 14 a game playing for Sydney Lowe. I was running pick and rolls. I had my career high, 14 points, you know, seven boards, whatever. Uh, when Hubie came to coach, his offense was entirely different. And the three-man in that offense did nothing but literally sit in the corner. And that was a great entry passer. So we had Pau Gasol. And, and back, you know, in the early 2000s, you, you kids are too young to remember this. But back in the early 2000s, you know, it was throw it in the, into the post, turn four, cut through. Inevitably, a, a double team would come. And it would be a pass out, swing, swing, corner three. Like, that was that was the offense. And so I found myself in the corner just like literally 85% of the time I was on offense. And so I said to myself, look, I want to play. I got to make this shot. You know, I probably took, probably took in my career at Duke five corner threes. That was never, was never there. And so, um, you know, by the time Daryl discovered me and found out, you know, that I was a pretty good corner three-point shooter, it was out of bare necessity that if I don't, if I don't make the shot, I don't eat. And so that's how I evolved as a player. Uh, it was uh, it was a little Darwinism. It was either make this or or find a new job. I, I gotta say though, I love I love your game and I love how you played. And I understand like and I'm, by the way, I'm older than you, but thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I, I think that transition that you made because I remember um, kind of towards the end of your career when you're Miami, you were you hit huge threes uh, in in the championship series. But so you made the shift, obviously working um, with Jeff and Gunny and Daryl. But like, did you try and do any anything additional than being spot up threes in terms of your game uh, when when you were making that adjustment? Well, you know, look, I, I wouldn't be here today if I if I didn't learn from from Daryl and and Sam Hinkie, you know, and and they taught me so much uh, about the way to look at the game differently. And, you know, I'm, I've always been a traditionalist and, uh, you know, the, the things that I was doing that were just part of my game um, had an explanation. And, and, and Sam and, and Daryl, you know, took the time to explain sort of the value that I that I brought by doing these little things that uh, for the most part really weren't appreciated uh, by, by, by the national media or, or maybe even former teammates and coaches. Um, but just the, the importance of keeping spacing, the importance of of not following. Uh, the importance of, of being a low turnover guy, like those aren't sexy things and no one's getting max contracts, but like those are things that I did better than anybody. And I was able to appreciate just the nuance of the game and, and start to understand there's value in, in every single little thing you do on the court, both positively and negatively. And, you know, the more positive, you know, expected value plays you can make in a game, both individually and as a team, over the long run, you're going to have success. And the more negative expected value plays you make individually and as a team, you know, the less success you're going to have. And it's it's really just a, you know, it's it's a Gaussian distribution. It really it really is. And it 
you know, for me, it, it took a while to understand that. Um, but with, with work and that's the thing about analytics, it's, uh, it's not always intuitive and it does take work and it does take asking questions and, and going through examples and I was able to live it. And so I was able to understand what was sort of a real application of analytics and what was more academic. And, um, and so I lived it. And so I, I had, I had skin in the game, <laughs> you know, I would say, and I, I, it just spoke to me. And so, um, I looked at it as, as a huge advantage. I didn't think it was, you know, the only way, but I thought for myself being an early adapter, it was a, a, a huge advantage for me. I, I would say one thing that I always thought you were great at Shane was figuring out what, what those impacts were. And then figuring out what the team needed and doing that, you had like a versatility. Actually, uh, did you actually consciously, possession by possession, think about what's most needed? Or did you think maybe more like at a game level, like this game, my best contribution is going to be X for us to win this game? I don't think it was a conscious thought. Um, I just wanted to win. I think it came down to, to being a competitor. And that was when I was... You know, young kid growing up in Detroit, like, you know, I was the only mixed kid. I had a black dad, white mom. I was a foot taller than everybody else. I was different, you know, but when I realized that I helped my team win in kickball or basketball or baseball, my friends look good. Um, doesn't matter what I, what I did. If I helped them win, then I'm loved and I play. People want me on their team. And so I took that mentality throughout my entire pro career of like, look, like, it's not about what I do. I could care less about my stats. I could care less if I got attention. Um, I knew that if, if our team won and won big, then, you know, as Hubie, as Hubie Brown used to say, we all take the same train uptown. Um, it really was, how do, what's the best way to win? And whether it's diving for loose balls, getting back in transition, D, keeping spacing, you know, taking tough assignments, um, just I wanted to make myself so valuable that the coaches sweat every second on I was off off the floor, and I wanted to make their life hell. That if I if I didn't play thirty eight minutes, you know, we had Sue Bird on a, a couple weeks ago, and one of the things that we talked about is as a professional athlete at the level that you played, uh, you know, now on where you are, there's you kind of get to see there's things that you just knew as an athlete made a difference and weren't captured in in the stats or in analytics is there something today that you are like this needs to be captured or should be captured i mean maybe you can't give away any secrets to daryl uh as you're working <laughs> Darryl, on those daryl but... has all the secrets he has all the secrets <laughs> no no shane shane made the finals last year so i, I definitely need this, so. you know i i think it's super important to understand this what's real what's not you know, there, there's some fantastic, fantastic research that, that I that I read at Sloan every single year and some really smart people that come through. And I, I talked to a bunch of people in the industry um, and, you know, I had the advantage of playing at the highest level and testing some of these theories out. But understanding what's real and what's theoretical is, is maybe um, super, super important. And that, that's true as a player and that's true as, as an executive. Right. And if you're out there as, as a player and, you know, you, you know that a guy's kind of a shaky, uh, uh, a shaky jump shooter, you know, you don't need the analytics to know if he makes a couple, then it's like, nah, it's not real. <laughs> those, are a couple <laughs> fake, those are a couple fake makes. Right. And you don't over you don't overreact to 
uh, like a small sample size, you know, and it's the same thing that, you know, when Daryl's team produces research or, or my, my team produces research uh, to be able to look at it and say, okay, you know, this is interesting. Um, or this is, this is either short-term thinking or this is long-term thinking. And it's, it's, it's really important to save yourself a lot of time, uh, maybe chasing, chasing down rabbits you can't catch. At the same time, though, those are, some, those are some of the best, you know, discoveries you make chasing those rabbits. But, but understanding what's real, what's not, and being able to do that decisively and quickly, is, I think, is a really important skill. Early in the year, I think what Shane said is super important. You, you have to make sure not to over or underreact. Like, so if you just happen to, you know, for example, we've started the season, we haven't hit a lot of our threes. That can really skew things and say, you know, we, we should push the panic button. But uh, because, you know, we, we had a bad loss a couple of days ago. But the flip is just as bad, which is like not pushing the panic button when these games matter just as much as later, if there is something fundamental. And I do think analytics really helps you try to tease those things out. Yeah. We're, we're, that's, I think where Daryl helped me the most. And um, he, he allowed me to look at the game unemotionally. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that was good for me as a defender. It's better to be unemotional about what your job is as an offensive player. You need a little emotion. I think it actually kind of hurt me as an offensive player, but as a defensive player, uh, to understand streaks and understand the probability of a guy getting super hot and the probability of, of, of a player, uh, you know, making shots that you'd expect him to miss more often than not. You know, the probability of, of, of when he goes to the basket, um, you know, he gets fouled at a super high rate. He's going to make those three throws at a super high rate. And what, 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 what the other side of that is. And so, you know, as a defender looking at a, you know, Kobe or a T-Mac or, or Paul Pierce, Ginobili, and, and looking at him as, as literally as a bunch of ones and zeros, instead of this great superstar, which is super intimidating because they look <laughs> they're larger than life. Um, it, it gave me a fighting chance. Uh, this, this slow old man who couldn't jump. Um, and that's where I think Daryl and, and Sam's contributions really, really helped me as a player. Now that you like you've shifted hats, like you've got the the Sam hat or the Daryl hat on with Miami, uh, what have been your, you know, your key sort of learnings and successes and failures with convincing coaches and maybe even more interesting players, uh, given your background and experience, to um, you know uh, understand and integrate that into their game where it makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, the fun, it's funny that the math's the math and, you know, I'm not class, classically trained in analytics. I was a religion major for goodness sakes. You know, I tried to, I tried to take, uh, you know, CS 55 at Harvard online. Um, that did not go well. All right. So that, that's just not the way I, the way I, I think it is a very difficult <laughs> profession. So I respect anybody who can do that. But at the same time, um, you know, I understand what the research says and, and again, can, can determine sort of what's, what's applicable, what's, what's real, what's not. Um, you know, when you put the executive hat on, and I, and I tell this to anybody who wants to become an executive or work work for a team, um, you know, throw in a throw in a behavioral psychology class. You know, and it's, it's no different than any other profession. As as much as you understand the math and can reproduce the math and, and have really really great data and great numbers, if you don't understand people, if you don't understand how people learn, if you don't understand uh, biases and blind spots. You're wasting your time, all right. And so there's, you know, I'm sure you've you've 
both dealt with this a lot to be able to communicate your ideas um, thoughtfully, concisely, um, and rationally um, is as much a part of becoming a, uh, someone who's in, 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 the, in the data space and sports as, as the math. And um, that's not what, you know, they, they, don't, they don't tell you that until you're actually in, in the fires. <laughs> so if you're listening, go, go take Psych 101, all right? And thank me later. One of the, there's two kind of general areas of focus that I'd love to focus on with you. And Daryl can jump in on some um, stats and uh, analytic rigor. But first is around culture, um, you know, both with all the championship teams that you played on in the NBA, uh, the teams that you played on at Duke, and then obviously what you experienced with the Heat last year. Would just love your perspective, especially being both a player and now on this side of applying analytics and thinking through that. How do you, do you think that culture can be quantified? And if it can, is it actually significant in terms of bringing championships? Daryl and I have a lot of discussions about is these things that we know as athletes, is it predictive? So I think for you, having both sides is really, you'll have an interesting perspective. Well, I've played in all types of cultures, good, bad, and ugly. Uh, from, from winning championships with Duke and the Miami Heat to 23 wins for the Memphis Grizzlies. And so um, <laughs> I've experienced every culture. Uh, but after all my experiences, I do think that you can measure culture. Now, it might not be in the modern way, uh, using linear regressions and and random force models and 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 sort of new age algorithms. Uh, yet, I say yet. I think eventually we'll be able to. But um, you know, when I think about this, I think about uh, a friend of mine who uh, owned a a bagel factory in Toronto, and uh, the production really really slept off because there were so many misshaped bagels and made made the factory. And, you know, he could have came into his, his, his line workers and said, hey, this will not stand. We need higher quality. You know, let's stop making bad bagels. Stop wasting food here. Let, let, let's, let's up our game here. Um, instead, uh, he chose to, uh, to up the culture in, in, a, in a much more remedial, uh, measurable way for his, uh, for his workers. And all he did is he installed a bagel counter that the workers saw each day as they walked to the line, to their, to their stations, of how many misshaped bagels uh, that were unsellable were made that day. And an amazing thing happened when people walked into work and they saw that bagel counter. Uh, they took it as a, as a challenge to not be the caboose in, in the company uh, on the line. And over the course of, of a measurable time period, everybody's performance, every shift, from the you know graveyard to midday, everybody's uh, efficiency and performance was was raised uh, just off the ba- off the off the, the basis of their competitiveness. And so uh, it's an amazing lesson for for me that look, he wasn't trying to uh, measure culture, but yeah. uh, in, in a kind of a backdoor way, he was, and he was able to change the culture and measure the change uh, by by just pointing out how many misshaped bagels were made. And so um, I do think there are ways, uh, small ways, uh, easy ways to to get a pulse on where culture is, how can it improve, and, and how can it decline? Well, here, you know, something I think in college football, 
there are some schools that have, they give uh, like little logos on the helmets. I'm not, I think people, different coaches do it for different reasons. There's like a great tackle or whatever. Some of the like unspoken little things that happen on special teams. Did you guys have anything or have you had anything like that over the course of your career? You've obviously had exposure to amazing coaches and amazing leaders. And I'm just wondering if there's a, a nuanced thing like that, that is actually in a way measured, but not on the, on the uh, yeah. box score or even in, yeah. even in the NBA today. Absolutely. And I, th- I think great leaders and, and great executives, they, they know their people and they know how to tap that vein. And I, I think about my time at Duke and Coach K did a, did a pretty slick thing in the preseason. Now, we, we all play pickup pick up games before the season, right? And they're, they're pretty competitive. Uh, he had the managers uh, always keep track of who was on the court. And there weren't points and rebounds and steals, assists. There was one stat, wins and losses. And that, that, that list was, was pinned to the locker room every single day. You, better, you bet your ass that you wanted to be at the top of that list. And you didn't, you didn't want to be the caboose uh, at, at the bottom of that list. And there was no punishment. You know, if you finished last, there was no extra yeah. running or anything like that. But it was, it was a pride thing. And, um, and so we, the coaches never talked about it. They just posted the sheet. And inherently, mm-hmm. we all wanted to be at the top of that sheet. So again, it, it's, it's a measure of culture. It's a measure of, of, uh, of establishing what our program was about. And it was about being competitive at the, at the highest level. And that, that translated from those pickup games into our regular season. You know, it's a, another really interesting culture thing. I don't know if you've ever watched softball in like college or even in high school. Maybe your daughter will uh, play it after soccer or something. But they actually have like a thing about on the bench being loud and clapping and cheering and supporting their teammates. And I wonder how much like those kind of intangible um, traditions really play into building some of that culture. I mean, you probably don't see it as much in the NBA, but like you you see the benches and if they're supporting the, the players on the court and some are very engaged and then you can tell, like, I'll never forget like the Dennis Rodman story when he like took off his shoes when he was on the bench and that's a culture like killer. And have yeah. you, have, are there things that in your experiences that you really, in my opinion, I mean, you do all the little things. I told you, I love your game. It's true, but you do all the culture things that you're a glue, like glue player. And so were there things that when you today driving analytics that you're looking for players who have that and it might not be measurable now, but you know, because of your experiences, Hey, this is the thing. Well, I was super lucky to learn the lesson of chatter of infield chatter from my dad. When I was a first grade, my baseball coach, my little league coach. And my dad was a pretty imposing guy and never raised his voice unless we didn't have infield chatter, unless we didn't support the, the you know, the kid who was last in the lineup at the plate. And if we didn't hustle off the field, like then big Ed Battier, uh, who passed away this year, you know, that, that's his legacy. They, he demanded that we be great teammates first and, and great competitors second. And so, like, that's all I knew. Of course, I'm going to support my teammate. Of course, I'm going to run over to pick up a teammate and help him if he falls. Of course, I'm going to pat him on the back if he strikes out or hits a home run. You know, of course, I'm going to hustle on and off the field. And uh, it's amazing that we, we were always the best baseball team. We, we won, you know, the city championship every single year. I was pretty good, but I like to think that because my dad built this, this special culture, and we're in first, second grade, 
you know, we, we don't know these lessons of culture. We just knew about being good teammates. And um, so I, I believe in it a hundred percent, a hundred percent with all my soul, those little things add up and they're, they're, they're micro, they're, they're just micro pieces of, of positivity, I call them. And the teams that, that win and win big have a lot of those micro pieces of positivity that add up to a, a competitive advantage. And so while we're not probably able to measure those things right now, we know what the components are. We know it's positivity. It's, it's the ability to handle um, adversity. It's the ability to, uh, to focus on our adversity. Um, those are all pieces that go into um, excellent teams and championship level teams. And, um, you know, there's a lot of literature in the business world about this and, and building a, you know, a C-suite team or, or a managerial team. Um, I think it's absolutely applicable to the world of athletics and sports. I also just want to pause and say I'm very sorry about your father passing this year. Oh, so, thank you. But sound, he sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, he's a good dude. Really, really good dude. Wouldn't be here without him. Yeah, it's, I remember uh, this year in the finals, Jimmy uh, Butler was so exhausted, just physically, emotionally drained at the end. And in my mind, I was thinking, is there a way to quantify someone who will push himself that far? Because I think most people or many people won't. And is that something you think you could poten potentially measure? You might not have an answer, but just... You know, that, that, that's, you know, we're all in the analytics world, but that's where uh, scouting still holds a huge, um, you know, a huge place in, in our game. We'll always, you know, to be able to watch a, a, a guy, how he interacts with his teammates, to watch a guy when uh, they're up 20 or down 20, what's his body language or her body language? What, what you know, how, how does the, how does that player react to how a, a coach talks to them after missed shots or, or an error? Um, and we're very early in the data game to measure these things. Uh, and so uh, the eyeball test of, of being able to watch human interaction and see how people respond is still hugely, hugely, hugely important part of our game. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Okay, I'm gonna, I have a couple more questions for you and then we have a game. Uh, so the, the first question is, well, we're kind of talking about the trends in basketball analytics. Is there anything that you're really excited about that you're hearing about or seeing? It doesn't need to be anything proprietary that, that yeah. Daryl can steal. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm, I get really excited about uh, all of the data that comes out on um, helping our players recover, helping our players stay healthy. Uh, it's, it's a tough game. I, I played it. <laughs> I, I still have, have the have scars from not being able to get out of bed or taking my you know, taking taking me thirty minutes to get out of bed the next morning after a, a back to back. And so health is such a, a hugely important aspect of our game. And, and players and teams are so much more educated than, than even when I played many many millennials ago. And so the research being done, uh, the way that we look at health and recovery. Um, it's, it's going to make our game much, much better. It's going to make our rosters better. It's going to make our league more competitive. Um, and so I, I think there's amazing opportunity and, and it's worth the, uh, the time and, and effort into, into that research. All right, Shane, if Duke wins 30 in a row, did it really happen? Does anyone care? I don't think so. I think people are more excited to beat you. Maybe that would be about it. So. Oh, that that's, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. You know, um, you know, when you're when you're at Duke, 
Um, first day, Coach K tells you, look, you got to understand that everyone goes and tries to find where they play Duke, and they circle that date. And so you have to understand <laughs> – that's true. You have to understand that that is the biggest date. That's their Super Bowl every year. You know, maybe not North Carolina or or Kentucky, uh, but even them, they're circling that date. And so you have to you have to prepare for everyone's Super Bowl every single night, from North Carolina A and T to Clemson to North Carolina. And if if you are willing to accept that challenge, yeah, that's your Super Bowl. Hey, we got a chance to beat Duke. And so if you don't want that challenge. Duke is not the place for you, and so you you learn you learn to take everyone's best shot and give it back, and uh, you know make it sharpens you, it sharpens you for March. All right, I think it's game time, Daryl. Unless you have anything, any other questions? Oh yeah, let's do game time. I love game, game time. time. So Shane, <laughs> we have a game called. It makes no sense, but we do it anyway. <laughs> I think it makes sense. Shane's very smart. Bench trade or tag like franchise tagging in football and it's our twist on kiss date or marry so we're going to give you three things and you need to pick whether you're going to what you're going to bench trade or tag and you need to tell us why okay okay so i'll start winning streaks winning streaks we talked a little bit about this but the miami miami heats 27 game winning streak the houston rockets 22 game winning streak and Duke's 32 game winning streak. Well, I'm trading the, the, the Duke one uh, because that did not end in a championship. Okay. And so no one really remembers that the streak we lost to UConn that year in the national championship game. And so um, it was awesome, but. By extension is the 72 win warriors tainted as well for you. Ooh. Because they didn't uh, um, cap it. I don't really count that. I don't count that. Sorry, I don't count it. You need, if don't you don't put it. the capper on it, it's not. It's not. It's not I know. As good. And it was over two seasons, right? No, no, they they won seventy one or seventy two in a season. You don't oh yeah, know that? yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that's that's yeah. But they didn't end in a title, so I was just curious if I've I've lost two titles in my my career, and uh, when you fall short. You, you don't want to count it as a competitor. At least I don't, you know, I, they, they may want to, but as me, I, I, I look at that as, as something I don't want to think about. So I'm going to bench the heat one because not for any reason um, that's negative. Um, it was, expl- it was much more explainable. Uh, the fact that we won 27 games and we have, you know, you know, three of the all time, you know, four of the all time great players in NBA history. So it's a little explainable. So I, I got to uh, got to franchise tag the Houston Rockets streak because that was unexplainable. I was there every second of the way, and I had I couldn't tell you how that happened. I couldn't tell you. It was the most unbelievable organic thing I've ever seen in sports, and I I, I can't explain it. And so that's why you got to you got to just appreciate those when they happen. But did you see Daryl's face when he realized that you were going to pick the Rockets? It was the like biggest shit eating grin <laughs> I've ever seen on his I'm face. I'm so happy. Yeah. <laughs> well, the streak is the streak is all I have. We have no titles. And Shane just said I should go fetal and cry that I've never won one because my life means nothing. So I just I have to I have to be happy with the streak. So it's good. It was a hell of a streak, Daryl. Yeah, it's not a bad thing to lead, lead off with your resume. 
<laughs> I will say it did uh, it did have quite a capper beating beating the Lakers and Kobe for twenty two. That was that was pretty special. Uh, although Doc Doc now likes to remind me that he ended it. Now that I'm working, we were we were so tired that day. We like beating Kobe, and for me, like that was that game took more mental energy from an individual perspective than any other game I ever played, ever. And because I knew Kobe wanted to end the streak personally, Paga Soul was out, so I go to the I go to the Toyota Center in the day, and, and I'm like, Kobe's going to shoot forty times. He's going to try to beat. He's, he's going to try to score sixty on me and beat the streak just to say he he did it. And it took everything I had. Everything I had to throw at him, and you know, I think I think had 20, 26 that game, but we won, and I was I was gassed. I had nothing left in the tank after that game. Shane was incredible. I remember, I think it was like win number nineteen in Atlanta, and I've never, I've only seen you broken twice in my whole Rockets career. There are two times you were broken. One was our Atlanta win, where you were just like, I think we need to lose because the energy required. For our players right now is insane. Like you, you were putting a hundred ten percent into like a Tuesday Atlanta game that yes. normally NBA players. Let's be frank. Like you're 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 putting in a real effort, but it's not like playoff level, right? Yeah, so our yeah. players were like playoff level every night to keep this thing going, which takes a toll. So I, the other time I remember you were broken mentally was I think there was a game where you were. It wasn't against Kobe. It was someone like Ginobili. You're guarding someone really tough again. And you were putting in, again, 100% full effort. And I think you had zero shots or two shots after the game, something like that, one or two. And you came to me and you're like, dude, <laughs> even I need to shoot every once in a while. <laughs> like, like, well, we broke Shane. We broke the perfect team player finally. A little biscuit. A little biscuit. Every dog needs a little biscuit every now and then. <laughs> so rule changes for basketball. Again, it's uh, bench, tag, trade, or something like that. Um, the Elam ending, which I think you're familiar with, obviously, as a, as a frequent Sloan attendee. Yep. Um, one free throw for, to get every point that on that trip to the line. Or three-pointers are now worth four, and all two-pointers are worth three. Um, I am trading the one three throw, uh, worth two points just because as a player, that's my rest time, man. I need, I need that to, to just catch my <laughs> breath and, and, you know, we can't keep going, man. We can't keep going. So that, that's, that's, it could be that's one out. free throw for three. I know. Yeah. You could, it could be a three point free throw. Actually. Yeah. It's too, it's too much. It's too, you, need, you need to take, you know, I, I think we, we can move that process along a little bit. It's a little slow, but it's just, that's, that's breath time. That's, that's mini break time. Um, you know, I am going to, uh, I'm going to bench the, uh, the, the four point shot. Don't hate it. Don't hate it. Uh, because it's exciting. You know, I'm assuming it's going to be lo- a longer three-point shot. Oh no, I, like I didn't see. explain it. It's I didn't explain it well. It's it's basically there are no there are no two-point shots anymore. All okay. two-point shots are worth three, and all three-point shots are worth four. It's it's so that there's a more of a balance between twos and threes. Yeah, I'm I'm going to bench it. I'm going to bench it. I'm a traditionalist, and that would mess up all the the history and the records and whatnot um, oh, a little bit. True. So. Yeah. So don't mind it. Don't mind it, but messing with tradition a little bit. Um, and I'll, I'll tag the Elam ending. 
anything you can do to make any games uh, compelling. You know, I, I think the reason why basketball is the greatest sport on the planet is when you get the best athletes in the world performing under pressure. That's why the playoffs are amazing because there's consequence. And you want to see how people respond to adversity and respond to stress and greatness reveals itself. And I think the Elam ending allows more of that to happen than traditional ending. And Daryl, then we'd be able to have more examples of clutch situations and we could see if it was actually predictive. Daryl doesn't believe that clutch performance is predictive or can be predicted. So, you know, the, I've, I've played with a lot of players over my, t- my time. Um, you know, there were some guys, you know, who wanted the ball. And I, I always took the ball out, you know, at the end of the game. I prided myself on being one of the great uh, inbounds passers in NBA history. All right. That's probably not a stat, but I, I had very few turnovers and I usually made the right decision. So I, that was a sense of pride for me. But I knew the guys that, that ran to get open. And the guys who would lay on a screen and be like, oh, man, I, I didn't get open. And so I knew who those guys, I will never reveal who they are. They know who they are. But I know in their heart of hearts who ran to get the ball, who wanted the ball, who wanted those three throws, who wanted that shot, and those who uh, didn't want, di- didn't really want the ball in their hands. Jesse, I actually think you should ask the last one, not me, since, oh, uh, since okay. I'm in it. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. Again, leading the witness. We kind of talked a little bit about this, so I feel like we maybe already know the answer, but we should see where you are in this. I mean, not you, you your combo team, the team of Shane and Daryl. Uh, this is on the Batioki performances. Uh, mm. Next next podcast that we do with you, Shane, it'll be about the Cabernet uh, with Batier. Yes. Batioki performances. You're defying gravity with Daryl, Billy Jean with Eric Spolstra. And you're the first, the last, my everything with Chris Bosch. Um, Chris Bosch is going to get uh, get traded because he's super talented and doesn't need any more recognition for his uh, his theatrical uh, <laughs> prowess. He's really funny. He's really funny. So if I get, if I called him the best batiokier of all time, it just it would it wouldn't make a dent. So. Chris is really funny. And if you haven't seen that performance on YouTube, look it up. Um, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to bench our, um, uh, our duet, Daryl. Uh, you know, it, just because the lighting was, was, was bad. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it didn't go viral. It didn't, it didn't go as viral as I'd hoped. And, um, <laughs> It, it was a very hipster scene. And so while we, while it was amazing, you had to be in the building, you know, kind of like a Stones concert to, to understand the magic that happened. It didn't translate to, to YouTube and, and the viral content um, like I hoped it would. And so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to franchise tag Eric Spolstra um, and his uh, lovely wife, Nikki's performance, Billie Jean. All right. Spo got up there, embarrassed himself in the name of charity and teamwork. And so that, and as you did too, Daryl, as you did too, but um, <laughs> he brought his family member in, in, in the embarrassment. You know, you just embarrass yourself. All right. If you would have br- <laughs> brought, brought Ellen up there, if you would have brought Ellen up there to embarrass her or Scott and Karen, <laughs> then you might've got the nod. Um, that would have put it over the top. 
Yep. So, Spo, Spo, thank you. Let's remind ourselves of this. Bad Yoki is for an amazing cause. Shane's cause, Take a Charge Foundation, takechargefoundation.org, if you want to help out uh, a great cause. Yes, we help a lot of kids, give, give them over $1.5 million in scholarships to give uh, kids like me uh, who are hungry and dedicated a chance to 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 make some noise. And uh, that's what we're doing. So thank you to Daryl and everyone who's ever been involved with Batty Oki or Cabernet with Batty A and helping, helping that make, make that a reality. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you have a game tonight. So... Uh, appreciate you you squeezing us in and just so awesome to talk to you, hear about your experiences and really your perspective as uh, a former player who's who's going to take things to the next level uh, with analytics on, in the NBA. So thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Jessica and Daryl. You guys are great friends. I appreciate uh, getting to know you guys even better uh, over these years. Thanks all you do for the uh, analytics community. You guys, you guys are rock stars. Thank you. Post-game huddle. Shane had so many great insights. I'm going to do a mix of the ones that I loved, but there are three three big ones. The first was his comment that if he had known earlier, he would have been shooting 23s a game. And the importance of that learning really from, from you and that discussion he had with Jeff Van Gundy, asking him to shoot more and, and him kind of pushing back. It's it's, it's really interesting to hear from his perspective what he would have done differently. The, the second component, which you also had some perspective on, was not overreacting to small sample size. Obviously, we know that's true from a statistics and analytical perspective. It was interesting to hear it from him, especially when we talk about momentum, which is something that he has really experienced very significantly as a player. And I thought your point around it being early in the season and some concerns there, some of the stuff that you're experiencing with the Sixers was was really insightful. The last, the last big one for me was this concept of measuring culture. I love the Bagel Factory story. We had a couple of conversations about some of the hidden culture at Duke where they would track the wins during the preseason and there was never a discussion, an open discussion. They just posted that the win-loss record for preseason games because only managers, coaches couldn't watch the games, as, as you know, in, in college athletics. But that that it's an unspoken culture creation of, I don't know, intangibles. And then the fact that he ultimately brought that culture and his role from a glue perspective back to his dad and what he learned playing baseball for him when he when his dad was his coach and the importance of chatter. A few years ago at Sloan, ESPN for the hackathon did, they tried to measure intangibles and were looking for, are there stats that can measure intangibles? And it just really raised to me that this concept of measuring culture, look, we try to do it in, in the business world too, but you can see it in sports. And that feels like something that that there probably are some things that are measurable that we'll need to come back to. So what do, you, what do you got, Daryl? I'll put a plug on the culture stuff to, to talk about. Shane has a, a case at Harvard with Francis Frey, who ended up uh, uh, being a little bit famous later for working with Uber and places like that, um, that is on on these cultural heroes like Shane and, and how to measure it. That's a pretty cool case that's still done at Harvard. So 
uh, not to plug your alma mater, but we did it twice this episode. Yeah. Fra- Francis Fry. What is why we consider it wrong. <laughs> it's okay. She she's considered yes. one of the all time best professors at HBS. She, she obviously went and uh, did a bunch of culture stuff with, with Uber. And she had a book that, that I'm actually reading right now called uh, unleashed, which is great about empowering uh, your team. But, but, uh, did you know she played basketball at Penn? I did not. There you go. So, so all great, basketball. all great people have played basketball at one point. That was the <laughs> Q, Q, QED. My biggest one, I had never, I've talked to Shane a million times, obviously working with him for many, many years, um, but I had not heard from him, uh, him talk about his prep for game 22 against the Lakers and Kobe, rest in peace. Um that that was I didn't realize how much he put into that game. It was pretty pretty amazing to hear. Uh, that's still one of the most memorable moments of uh, my career and life. Was that was that game because they they were completely determined to beat us. Um, and and then Ray Ferrellson went uh, all end one mixtape tour at the end. Is is still one of the all time great memories. So, I mean, Daryl. He he tagged the Rockets' win streak, so you got to feel great about that, that too. That was a big that was a big moment for me. <laughs> yeah, I figured like Moneyball was about a win streak, so um, you know oh. our win streak. Pretty much, win streaks are the same as titles. They're 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 less likely. That's that's how I look at it now. <laughs> there you go again, finding the rules that are gonna be in your favor. I do want to say thank you to everyone who are producing these uh, podcasts. Thanks, Jason and Lance and Andrew. And I think Veer is on today. Obviously, Maggie and Lindsay as well. Thank you, guys. Thank you to our listeners. Hope you had fun. Thank you, Oracle. In sports, as well as business, analytics drive the actions you need to succeed. Oracle Analytics provides one of the most comprehensive AI-powered analytic capabilities for both business and IT. When you're ready for peak performance, it's Oracle Analytics for the win. If you enjoy this podcast, please submit questions, comments, or feature topic ideas to trash talking at sloansportsconference.com. Is it day?